(laughs) I said, after 30 years, you'd think I'd know how to do this. But I have never been accused of being professional. So, Kevin, thank you so much. And listen, I know you guys may be like, you know, why do we do this in the middle of a service or whatever? But honestly, this is... This is a community. This is what we believe that this is supposed to be. And we don't want anything hidden or, or, or secreted away. We want you to be aware of what we're aware of. And we can all be praying about it together. But we just, you know, that's, that's the whole idea uh, behind that. So appreciate everybody's generosity. That's pretty wonderful. So thank you again. Uh, listen, last week we, we finished up the final chapter of of the Gospel of John, which concluded our year-long study uh, of that book. Uh, and if you're new or you're visiting this morning, uh, this this is our practice. I mean, sometimes we'll do standalone topical series. Not that often, though. For the most part, we like to dive in and and tackle an entire book, go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's just I'm someone who, uh, based on my own previous experiences before, I just feel like that's a safe way of approaching Bible studies because we can keep things in their context uh, for the most part. So, you know, because that's one of those dangers of Scripture. You can lift something out of its context and it can mean something completely different than what it originally intended based on where it's placed within the narrative. So we've rescued a lot of things that uh, along the way as we've as we've done this. And also I think we get a better feel for the story that's behind uh this this the, you know that 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 surrounds these sacred tr- texts that we believe are God's word to us. And so it helps us recognize how our story then fits with this story and and it brings more meaning and purpose and value to our understanding of of not only this world but who we are in this world and who we are in god now usually when we finish a book like we did last week we just kind of move on to the next thing but somehow i just couldn't let myself do it this time um for me man i discovered new things i just so enjoyed digging into this gospel like we did, that deep dive into the Jesus story. And I just felt like I wanted to do a recap uh, of this, like a, a summary uh, of sorts. Uh, you know, Bible illiteracy is rampant in the evangelical church. They have been sounding those alarms for years now. I would take it a step further and say that Jesus' illiteracy is rampant in the church. We're discipled largely by news pundits and not so much the gospel. So I committed to the Lord a while back that I was going to do all that I can to get our attention focused on Jesus, whether we're going back to the gospels over and over or, or whatever it's going to take, but we want to, we want to know who Jesus is. We want to know who it is that we are following because he's who we follow. It's important to know him through his story, through his teachings and his example and his mission. Because when we see that, when we understand that, we better understand what our role is as the church in this world. Now, John's gospel is a premium source. Forgetting to know not just what Jesus did and said, but the why behind it. We spent a year digging into all of that to bring that to light. So to conclude our study, I wanted just to take one last look at this book and give you a few quick takeaways 
that could possibly facilitate you if you dig into this book on your own, which I'm hoping beyond hope that you will do, that, that there'll be a passion or an interest in what we discovered here to go back in and look at it and, and contemplate it and meditate on it and, and absorb it. John uh, stated the purpose of his writing near the end of his book. And we read it just a few weeks ago in John chapter 20, verse 31. He wrote he, that uh, he said, these are written that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life by the power of his name. So this is asserting three things that he wants us to grasp a hold of. First, that Jesus is Messiah meaning that he is this anointed one, the mysterious king that the prophets of Israel had foretold for years and years who was going to come and bring God's rule into this world. Secondly, John wants us to know that that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that this Messiah that everybody had been anticipating is actually divine. And as such, he's a revelation of the heart and the character of God to us. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is doing, look at what Jesus did. If you want to know God's heart, look at what Jesus said. Listen to his words. And then thirdly, John stated if we would believe this about Jesus, and and believe means more than just mental assent. It means more like, you know, it doesn't mean, oh, that seems like a good idea. I'll go along with that or whatever. It means to embrace this with our lives. Uh, then this living Jesus will also give us life, a life connected to God. Eternal life is what we normally refer to it as. Now, John's gospel was written around seven miraculous signs that he, he highlighted to make sure that he drove home this point. It, his 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 story wasn't necessarily chronological. It was thematic in what he was trying to get across. So these signs are making the point about who he is. We're not going to go through all of those, but just so you're aware of them. And then it was also written around seven statements of I am, where Jesus used the words I am and self-applied them. And you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? But I am was the covenant name that God gave to Israel back when Moses stood before the burning bush. And he said, well, who should I tell Israel sent me to make these audacious claims to Pharaoh? And the voice came back, tell them I am sent you. It was the covenant name. Jesus self-applied those seven different times. And John made sure to wrap his narrative around those. He used certain images over and over to make his point. Light and darkness and water and bread. And all of which carry the imagery from creation, the creation account. Let there be light. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of deep waters. The land rose from the waters, bringing forth all of the fruits and the, and the, the, the means for making bread and sustenance for the flourishing of life. So John's gospel is organized, organized around this, or organized. Uh, <laughs> Organized around the intent to reveal Jesus as Messiah, to reveal that Messiah is God, and that trusting in him results in new life for us. Now, on the back of your bulletin, uh, I had a, a, a structure of John uh, put on, on there. Liz put those into the bulletin for you. And it, it shows how he carefully crafted his story 
to drive these points home. As I said, it's not a chronological account. It's, the, it's arranged around thematic ideas that drive home these three issues, that Jesus is Messiah, that Messiah is God, and that believing in him gives life. So we began with a prologue in chapter 1 where imagery from the Genesis creation account was employed. In fact, he even begins his gospel with the same three words that Genesis begins with. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created, it says in Genesis, in the beginning was the word says John. And this was meant to trigger the idea that this whole story is a story about new creation coming into view, new creation bursting right out of the old creation. And from there, the book is divided into two sections, as you see here. Uh, the first section, chapters 2 through 12, is is called the Book of Signs, and it's a series of stories about specific miraculous signs that Jesus did that revealed important distinctions about Jesus and his ministry. And it's cool because, again, in all of these accounts of these these signs that he did, there's so much misunderstanding and there's so much confusion that surrounds it. It's all through that gospel narrative, but it's intended to force the people in the story and the reader as well to, to make a determination. It's forcing us to decide who this Jesus is, who we think this Jesus is. Now, this book of signs also is divided into two sections, as you can see. Chapters 2 through 4, Jesus uh, was set in contrast with four institutions of uh, Israel's story. And in each one, Jesus is shown to be a completion of what the law or the Old Testament story was communicating, was anticipating. We talk about it being messianic replacement of those institutions. And I don't want you to misunderstand when we say that. Because replacement doesn't mean that God, you know, tried the law and that didn't work, so let's try Jesus. It wasn't that. It was a fulfillment of it. Jesus came, and this is what Paul makes the point of in Galatians so clearly, that Jesus came and fulfilled everything that the law was anticipating. All of the Old Testament was pointing towards this Jesus who is coming, who then fulfills all of that and provides then what God had intended all along. So in in chapter 2, we see Jesus turn water into wine uh, at a wedding feast. He's transforming water that was used in purification rituals, the institution of purification rituals. And the wine was so good, the master of the banquet said, man, you saved the best until last. And it was symbolic of what was happening here. There was a revelation of what God had come to do in, in extravagant love. He was replacing religious ritual with this joyful life that was symbolized in the wine. And then the story moved to another institution of Israel, the temple. And Jesus cleared the money changers and he shut down its operations, declaring himself to be the temple. He said, you tear this thing down and in three days I'll raise it back up again. He was talking about himself. And he was saying then that this institution of the temple was just a placeholder that, that where heaven and earth will meet is now in Jesus. That's the revelation of that. Then in chapter 3, the rabbinical institution was highlighted when Jesus met with a rabbi named Nicodemus at night. And Jesus revealed that Israel needed more than just another teacher or more instruction about things. They, as all people, needed a new heart uh, that is to be born again as part of this new creation. Or we could say as forerunners of this new creation that's breaking out in this world. 
From there, Jesus travels to Samaria in chapter 4, to the famous well from Israel's history, Jacob's well. And again, he leverages the water theme, and he invites a Gentile woman to drink water that will quench her thirst forever. And he was using the water then as a metaphor for himself, meaning that he could enable us to live a life that's infused with God's presence and God's love, a life that never ends because it's connected to God's eternity. That's what he was promising, and and that's what he was envisioning by using this metaphor of water. The next section of the book of signs was arranged around four Jewish festivals. Jesus used images from those festivals to make claims about himself. So in chapter 5, we find Jesus uh, healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. Uh, uh, again, one of those times of, 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 uh, uh, of importance in the, in the Jewish faith. And that kindled, you know, by him healing a guy on the Sabbath, it kindled the ire of the religious leaders who viewed healing someone as work. Uh, you know, so they were, he was working on the Sabbath, but Jesus countered, my father is always working and so am I. And they get it. He's claiming equality with God and they're so moved by that that they decide he's got to die. And so the Passover then comes into view in chapter six and Jesus miraculously multiplies bread to feed a multitude of people. And then the people ask for more bread. We could use a little more over here, Jesus. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Again, that covenant name. I am the bread of life. And he says that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is the means of finding true life. And the people are so moved by this that they all bail out on him and abandon him. I mean, look, that that claim, him saying that, that was weird by anybody's standards. Uh, it was weird stuff to say, but but he was trying to point to a new Passover a new exodus, a new means of finding deliverance through his sacrificial death, which he would provide on the cross. In chapter 7, through the first part of chapter 10, the Feast of Tabernacles becomes the stage. And again, we're talking about these festivals in Israel. It's a time when Israel remembered its wandering in the desert. And they had a ritual where they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and the high priest would take it up to the altar. And for seven days of the festival, uh, on the seventh day, uh, I mean, he would be pouring at the end of each day for seven days, he'd pour water. And then on the seventh day, uh, he would go up and as a reminder of how God provided water from the rock for the Israelites in their wandering years, he would pour that out and the whole place would become silent and in reverent awe. And at that moment, Jesus jumped up and and said that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, indicating that he was the true water that they were anticipating. Then later in the festival, when they would light these great lamps in the temple courtyard to remind them of the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness at night, Jesus again stepped up and declared, I am the light of the world. So he was declaring himself to be God's source of new life, the water always representative of that life, and God's illuminating presence, the light. So he is the source of life. He is the source of enlightenment for that life. And again, light and water and the themes of creation are prevalent through this. In the last part of the book of Signs, chapter 10, the action is set during the festival of, festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, and it's, it's called the Feast of Rededication. 
And it came from the time 200 years before Jesus when Judas Maccabee led a revolt against the Greek occupation of Israel. And so he restored Israel to their independent state. And then they also restored the temple, which had been desecrated by the pagans. So they rededicated the temple. And to rededicate the temple meant they were making it holy again, which literally meant set apart to God, set apart as unique to God. And Jesus uses that same terminology to identify himself as the one truly set apart by God to reveal God in chapter 10, verse 36. And then he was building on a bold claim that he made in, in chapter 10, verse 30, that he and the Father are one, self-identifying as divine. And that set in motion the determined effort by the religious leaders to have Jesus put to death. So Jesus had to make himself scarce. He went off into hiding, and, and that brought to a conclusion the book of signs, the, the second uh, uh, part of uh, the book of signs. From there, if you, if you see on the back of your bulletin, there was a, a small interlude in chapters 11 to 12 where Jesus risks his life by coming out of hiding uh, to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. It was the last of the seven signs that, that John's gospel was written around, and it was a forecast of what Jesus himself was going to do. This seventh sign was a picture of how Jesus would lay down his own life in order to give new life. It, was, it carried with it so much symbolism, and it forecast the, 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 the meaning behind what it is that Jesus was, was present to accomplish. And from there... Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and we read about his triumphal entry. He was riding in the same way, riding into Jerusalem the same way Simon uh, uh, the Maccabee uh, did 200 years before him. Only Jesus' revolution was going to be very different. It wasn't going to be one with the violence of sword, swords, but with sacrificial love. The final part of John's gospel, chapters 13 to 20, are called the, the book of glory. Uh, and in chapters 13 to 17, as you can see there, it's, it's comprised mostly of Jesus's final instructions to his disciples. And it kicks off with Jesus doing this scandalous thing of washing his disciples' feet. Now, that was something that was unheard of uh, in that time. Uh, you know, we're so removed from it in terms of time and culture that we don't get the impact of it, but it was something that not even servants were required to do because it was deemed so uh, so demeaning, so dehumanizing to be in a situation like that. But it was a symbolic act that revealed God's nature of self-giving love. Uh, you know, we know what God is like when we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus. And then Jesus told us to follow that example. It wasn't just meant for us to look at and say, wow, isn't that so cool? Jesus went ahead and and washed people's feet. Isn't he a nice guy? No, he wanted us to follow that example. And he gave this great command in, in verse 34 of chapter 13, love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Something I just feel like we don't, Remember enough. <laughs> words and actions, uh, uh, words and actions of loving generosity are meant to be the hallmark of Jesus' followers. That's the identifying attribute. From there, Jesus goes into a long speech and prayer that prepares his followers for his absence. 
something I think that they were not anticipating at all. And the text even indicates they're getting more and more bummed out as Jesus was talking. But he encouraged them that he would send the Holy Spirit who would indwell us, indwell his followers. That That is, God's divine presence would now take up residence in us. This is what he's saying in this. Enabling us to carry on his mission into this world. This wasn't just about us looking at Jesus doing something as a one-off and thinking that's really interesting and, and quite, you know, touching. This was about us joining him in this advance of new creation, breaking out into this world. He also warned them that they were going to be hated, just like he, he was, which, you know, was a bummer by any account. But he encouraged them not to fear because he had overcome or literally he had gained victory over the world. But then we get to the final section of the book, the passion narrative, where where John shows us what that victory looks like. And it's really surprising. It's upside down from our world's concepts of victory and, and, and power. Religious leaders bring soldiers to arrest Jesus in chapter 18, and they ask for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus declared, I am he employing that same covenant terminology. And the the section is such an amazing picture because as he says, I am he, all the soldiers fall backwards. In other words, it's a demonstration of his divine power right there. But he's using the focus. The picture that is, is so startling is that he is using his divine power to give up his life for us. What an incredible picture of power. What a, what a startling image. Victory is revealed in sacrificial love. From there, Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin and, and Pilate. And Pilate asks him if he's a king. And Jesus explains that his kingdom isn't from this world. And, and meaning in that, that, that his kingdom is for this world... But its values and methods are not derived from this broken world's definitions of power and greatness. Something altogether different was happening here. Something brand new was being birthed into the world. Now, his kingdom is defined by what Jesus has revealed about the nature and the character of God all through his ministry, all through his words, right up to this point. And it's about God's incredible, remarkable love for humanity. And it all gets epitomized when Jesus ends up on a cross. Jesus conquers evil by taking the consequences of evil onto himself. He gains victory over it through this act of self-giving love. So Jesus dies, and they bury him. But then as we've been reading over the last several weeks, and what we're anticipating coming up in March, our celebration of Easter, Jesus rises from the dead, and it vindicated his claim to be the Son of God and, and showed us that divine love is the means of conquering death 
And we have to think about what that means, what that entails. That's more than just a a friendly theological or doctrinal concept. Paul described death as the last enemy. Think about all of the things that can trouble you and make you fearful in this world. What does it all tie back to? The fear of the loss of life. The fear of death. Jesus conquered that. Jesus overcame that through sacrificial love. He undid the power of death so that Paul could make the statement, Oh, grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And so it concluded, John's gospel concluded with an epilogue, which we looked at last week, reminding us that we still carry on Jesus's mission through all of the events of our life. Disciples went out fishing, something that they knew to do. There was no satisfaction in that, but Jesus infused it with a new meaning. And all of the things that we experience in life, the the big events and the quiet moments, all of it is woven together into a picture of God's great kingdom of love, which he puts on display through us to this broken world to let everyone know There's something much, much better on the horizon. Things may hurt here, and it still seems so dark, but the light has broken into the world, and the darkness could never put it out. And 2,000 years later, after this story was penned, here we are, still representing this light, which the darkness cannot extinguish. And that is John's gospel, written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, we would have life by the power of His name. Well, it took me 21 minutes and 53 seconds to say what took me a year to say uh, before that. But it takes a lifetime to meditate and study and absorb all of this. And it's my deepest wish and desire and prayer for you that that you'll be enticed back into this gospel, that this won't be a one-off study in your life, but that you'll come back here, that you'll meet this Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, and that it will kindle that new life in your own heart, in your own walk with him. Let's embrace the truth of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and let's live the life that He gives. Let's show it off to the world. Right on? Right on. All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we're grateful to you. We're thankful for your word. We thank you that you formed this community that you have, and you've given us this space to be able to dig deeply into your word. And Lord, we've spent a year picking and digging and scraping away debris and finding so many jewels and so many beautiful things. But Lord, I can look back at the hole that we dug and realize there's so much more. There's so much more in there that we didn't get to. And so I just pray, Father, that you by your spirit will stir our hearts to, to investigate, to come back to this, to meditate on what we've learned here. Guide us and lead us into a deeper relationship with you, Jesus. You alone are the source of life. You alone 
have the words of eternal life. Help us, Father, to embrace that, to live that, and to live that into this world. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
person that's here. Lord, if there's someone here who hasn't made that commitment, hasn't embraced this truth with their life, I pray, Father, that you impress on that one the life that's awaiting, the meaning, the purpose, the value that's there. A spirit-filled life connected to the divine where Creator God leads and guides and provides. And if you're wondering, well, what do I do? I don't know what to do. It just takes that willingness. I believe this. Now, let me learn. How do I live this? We were singing and I saw just an image of a buckle, a belt buckle being pulled tightly. So here's what the Lord wants to say to someone here, I think. It may be the Lord. There's so many loose ends, so many things that have distressed you that are flying in the wind. I am that buckle. 
I will draw this together and make you whole. I will support you and sustain you because I love you. So Lord, who, man, I need that. So I'll take that, Lord. But help all of us find that sense of stability that comes from a life well formed around you and your truth. Guide us and lead us into that. Pray that for us as a people in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's speak this blessing on one another before we bail out of here today. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, come on up. There's people here who would love to pray with you and see what God will do. Uh, be friendly with one another as we're, as we're leaving here today too, remembering the body of Christ. But let's speak this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.